that's such a meaningful song uh, to me uh, to know that God is ahead of us and behind us and beneath us and above us and he works through us and I hope uh, I really hope that you sense that today here at Windsor and we're so happy that you're here um, and this is a song that prepares us for our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. You'll find that on page 739 of your church Bibles. And I'm going to be reading uh, beginning in verse 13. And so actually that'll be just a page over on 740, Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to begin at verse 13. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, and you would like, uh, just take the uh, copy that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from this church family. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. 
Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the, from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of the fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is God's word. She's been called the first lady of the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, uh, one of the most famous names in civil rights history. Uh, Sixty years ago, this year, Rosa Parks refused to give her bus seat to a white man. She was arrested for her defiance. Later, she wrote a book called Quiet Strength, Quiet Strength. This is what she said. She said, you know, when I sat down on the bus that day, I had no idea history was being made. I was just thinking of getting home. But I had made up my mind. After so many years of being a victim of the mistreatment my people suffered, not giving up my seat, and whatever I had to face afterwards was not important. I did not feel any fear sitting there. I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever it was I had to face. It was time for someone to stand up or in my case, sit down. So I refused to move. And then in an interview uh, about that historic day, uh, Rosa Parks corrected some misconceptions. She said, people always say that uh, I didn't give up my seat because I was tired. But that isn't true. And I wasn't tired physically, or at least no more tired than I usually was at the end of any working day. And I wasn't old, although some people, you know, have an image of me being old back then. I was only 42. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. Tired of giving in. Rosa Parks, the first lady of the civil rights movement. That's unwavering. And that's our word today as we continue in our uh, series called Unreligious. Uh, if this is your first time here at Windsor Road, we are so glad to have you as our guest. My name is Randy. I'm uh, privileged to be the minister, preaching minister here at the church. And we're in a series of messages um, called Unreligious. And what that means is that we are discovering through some amazing accounts in Scripture what it looks like to be wholly committed to God without coming across as a holier-than-thou churchgoer. What we're learning in this series called Unreligious is that what's important is not just that we express our faith 
within these walls, but that we live our faith outside of these walls and that people can see Christ in us. That's the whole point. And, and that comes at a cost. And that means that we need to remain unwavering. And that's what we're going to be looking at here in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 answers the question, what does unwavering faith look like? What does unwavering faith look like? What's the stuff of unwavering faith? Uh, Faith with resolve. Faith with well-mannered resolve. Well, we see that in these verses. Um, so the backstory of Daniel chapter 3 has to do with the emperor of the greatest empire on earth at the time, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who was a kind of a military warrior king over what historians call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Neo, New Babylonian Empire. Which means that Babylon had had influence over world affairs, and then that influence waned when the Assyrians came. And then there was a resurgence of a Babylonian influence in culture and literature, etc. And that's why they call it the New Babylonian or the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And the zenith of this New Babylonian influence was beneath the king of a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a spectacular builder. Uh, Babylon was a spacious three square mile city, which was just amazing uh, back then. Uh, walls which surrounded the city were so thick, you could... It, you could take two chariots, and it was kind of like a double lane with wall. It was just amazing. Uh, there was a gorgeous stone bridge that crossed the Euphrates. Uh, uh, they were tower builders back then, and uh, the famed Ishtar gates, and the Ziggurat temple, and... Uh, um, and then there's the hanging gardens of Babylon, which they're still looking for, but the reputation of this amazing site is still uh, in ancient literature. Uh, the Babylonians gave us art, gave us culture. Uh, they excelled in mathematics. Do you know why there's 60 seconds to a minute or 60 minutes to an hour? Well, the Babylonians figured that out. They, uh, they gave us the sundial, which later gave us the, uh, the, the ability to tell time and, and my goodness, all of this under Nebuchadnezzar, who kept his empire intact by uh, conquering people, and then he would bring back to Babylon the best and the brightest and the smartest and the prettiest, and it just made it a diverse cosmopolitan city. He would take an emerging generation, and he would strip the nobility of that generation of their heritage, and he would give them new names and new wardrobe. He would educate them in Babylonian literature and culture and philosophy and music and engineering and mathematics because he wanted to make Babylonians out of them and make them loyal to him. He did that to the Hebrew royalty and the Hebrew nobility. He did that when he captured Judea and he would bring back the best of that group and four of those Hebrews, we learn were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
And we know Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in Daniel chapter 1, these four pushed back against the empire courteously and graciously. But in a time of challenge and controversy, they stood their ground. And God gave them favor. And God gave them wisdom and insight. And this so impressed Nebuchadnezzar. He gave them responsibility. He gave them access. He gave them favor. And he promoted them to the, you know, the upper echelons of, of power in his empire. And, and not everybody was happy about that because they were passed over. And so now, you know, that they have the attention of the boss, these four become targets. And that's where Daniel chapter 3 picks up. Daniel chapter 3, take a look at verse 1. The, the account begins with an incredible a statue or idol that King Nebuchadnezzar built, nine feet wide, 90 feet tall, covered in gold. The Babylonians could build towers. They knew how to do that. This was an amazing structure. After making Babylonians out of his professional executive leadership from all around his empire... He wants to consolidate the unity of his leadership. And so, so, what better way to do it than to use religion? He wants them all to play church together. So he summons his government. He summons uh, uh, judges and leaders and mayors and all sorts of levels of government out to a plain where they can behold this incredible statue. And if you could just picture like a joint session of Congress, along with like, you know, the opening ceremony of the Olympics, if you kind of put those together, there it is, this amazing, amazing sight. And Nebuchadnezzar's there, and he's got this incredible orchestra. And the plan was this, when the orchestra started to play, this world-class orchestra uh, consisting of all types of instruments. Verse 5, the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon. I don't know what that is, but you just keep reading like you know what it is. The bagpipe, well, that's where the Scots got it. I don't know. But when they hear this orchestra play, take a knee, bow, prove your loyalty to the empire and to the emperor... Under penalty of death by fire, the very furnace that was used to make the bricks to build this magnificent city would become a death chamber for any who refused to bow. And sure enough, when the music started, hundreds, perhaps thousands, fell to their knees before this impressive statue. And as your eyes swept across this plain, you'd see this great choreography of Babylonian governmental officials and leaders and VIPs dropping to their knees and bowing their heads. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. You are sovereign over all. You control all of our lives. What a production. Judges, officials, governors, mayors, uh, Important people from all over the empire, all of them were bowing. All of them in unison, music, 
lights and statue. It's amazing. Go Babylon. Except for three over there. Row 13. I see you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were standing. Everybody else was bowing. Except for three Hebrews. And they're not carrying signs. And they're not chanting. They're just quietly standing. But they're defiantly standing. And they're unwavering. Absolutely unwavering. Well, the other Babylonians, you know, the ones that have been passed over for promotion because of these three, oh my goodness, their rivals, the rivals of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, they saw this and they immediately start tattling. Babylonian babies. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Circle that word, maliciously accused. There's a word picture there. Ooh. Once I tell you this word picture, some of you are going to go, ew. Others of you are going to go, cool. Maliciously accused. Here's the word picture. Here's what it literally means. Maliciously accused literally means... To eat the pieces of flesh torn off someone's body. Cool. <laughs> yeah. But that's what slander does, doesn't it? Huh? Eats the pieces of flesh torn off. Wow. That's what was going on here. Verse 12, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you set up. Nebuchadnezzar goes, bring him here. Nebuchadnezzar knew these guys, right? Fellas, this is making me look bad. You're making me look bad. I can't afford to appear weak. Now, I'm going to give you one more chance, okay? When the music starts, take a knee that's all you got to do. You don't even have to believe it, okay? But you got to do it because we're all in this together. Home team, let's go. Let's get on the same page. If you don't, then immediately I'm going to put you in the fiery furnace because I'm in charge here. I'm the boss of you. I control you. And if I throw you in the furnace, there's no coming back whatsoever. Verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And that question has been asked a hundred different ways by kings and kingdoms and corporations and companies and industries and employers throughout history. If you don't do what I tell you to do, I don't care that it's unethical. I don't care that it's illegal. I don't care. If you don't do what I tell you to do, who's going to pay your salary? Who's going to cover your health care? Who's going to contribute to your pension? And when that question is on the table, it's decision time, isn't it? We have a choice, don't we? 
Are we going to trust an earthly king that we can see or a heavenly king that we cannot? Because there's something on the line here, isn't there? Your career's on the line. Your promotion's on the line. Tenure's on the line. And in some cases, your life may be on the line. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spoke with unwavering conviction. Your majesty, with respect, we don't bargain. Not on this. Verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to justify ourselves. We don't need to explain ourselves. We're not worried about this. We're not worried about this. Someone once said that worry is paying interest on a debt you have not incurred. We're not worried. You throw us in the furnace, verse 17, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. We know what God is able to do. We know that God is able to heal the sick. We know that God is able to restore a broken marriage. We know that God is able to soften a hardened heart. We know that God is able to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. We know that God is able to turn the heart of a leader for good. We know that God is able to use a church and a community to lead people back to God. We know what God is able to do. But if he doesn't, but if not, verse 18, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They said it without flinching. They said it without blinking. They said it not because they knew what God was going to do. They said it because they knew what God was capable of doing. We don't know what he's going to do, but we know what he can do. And your majesty, you think that you control the outcomes and you don't control the outcomes. You think that you're in charge. You're not in charge. And when Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he became a furnace. Verse 19 says that his face changed. He was filled with fury. And he had the furnace heated. It says seven times hotter than it normally was. That, that's, just, that's another word picture that means he heated it as hot as it could go. It was so hot that his three mighty men who bound uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and brought them to the furnace, why, these mighty men themselves died throwing them in. I mean, this should have been over before they even tossed them into the oven. But then the strangest sight occurred. You see that in verses 24 and 25. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the God. And Nebuchadnezzar called them out. And the three came out. 
I mean, no smell of smoke, no singed hair, clothing intact. I love how the scripture puts it. The fire had no power over them. God had not rescued them from the fire. He had rescued them in the fire. In the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar was just just simply astonished. (laughs) And it seems like this guy was just like a man of extremes because, you know, he says in verse 29, okay, new rule. I therefore make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Okay. And then on top of that, he promotes the three. (laughs) Verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. (laughs) End of chapter 3. What does this tell us about the stuff of unwavering faith? Well, well, let let me ask you some questions here. Listen, do you think that you are where you are by some random fluke event of the universe or maybe your own human effort? Or do you believe that you are where you are because there is a God who is sovereign over all? You're here in the United States, population 320 million people out of a world population of 7.2 billion people. Is that just, are you just here out of some dumb luck? Or might the sovereign God of heaven have something to do with that? So then do you think you have to dilute your faith in God in order to keep the blessings of God? Do you? Yet that's the temptation, isn't it? You know, we reach some measure of success and what? There's more on the line. There's more to risk. There's more we could lose. And we're tempted to waver in what we know is true about the God of this universe and his promises. We're tempted to waver by thinking, okay, well, even though God brought me here, it's up to me to keep the very thing that God has freely given. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, look, they reasoned we didn't make it this far because we passed Babylonia business school with honors. No, that's not how we got here. We, we didn't make it here because we decided to make it here. We made it here because the God of heaven and earth kept us alive on the trip from Judah to Babylon. He kept us alive when we could have been killed. So then why would we forsake faith in God just to keep the blessing of God? You hear the big idea coming about what unwavering faith is? Unwavering faith will never forsake faith in God just to keep the blessing of God. Unwavering faith will never, ever forsake faith in God just to keep the blessing of God. And I think one of the best gifts that God could give you and me would be the gift of taking your life And bringing you to a point of decision where you have one of two choices. 
the choice between following an earthly king whom you can see or the choice of following a heavenly king whom you cannot. And he takes you to that choice and he takes you to that decision and you've got to decide, am, am I going to choose between a faith that wavers under trial or am I going to choose unwavering faith? And I think, that, I think that's one of the greatest gifts that God could give you. And when he puts you in that situation and you have to make those choices, here's what's a gift. In that very moment, you choose and you learn something about him and you learn something about yourself. Amen. Amen. I, I pray that he gives us that gift. Because you see, at that time, when you choose the unseen heavenly king who is sovereign over all, the most high reigns over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to each one he chooses. When you See, you never know who's watching your story. You never know the influence and the impact and the way that you can teach and move and motivate others. You never know the power of your story to influence the lives of others. They see your unwavering faith and they conclude, you know what? I mean, if, if, if he can do it, if she can do it, then maybe I can do it. You know, if, if, if God can do it through him or her, then perhaps by his grace, God can do it through me. Because you see, let me tell you something. Look up here. The same God who rescued them from the fiery, burning furnace in Daniel 3 you just sang to that God about 20 minutes ago. He's right here in this room. He hasn't changed. We don't know what he's going to do. But we know what he's capable of doing. And so we're going to trust. And we're not going to forsake faith in God just to keep the blessings of God. That is the stuff of unwavering faith. And that's what I want you to see in these verses this morning. But I'll be honest with you, church family, uh, this passage of Scripture scares me. Having said all I said, um, I'll say that these verses scare me, and here's why. You all are excellent listeners. You really are. Um, you hear the word. And you're not just hearers of the word, you're doers of the word. And that's why I feel such a privilege at being your pastor. And what sobers me about these verses is that some of you are going to hear these scriptures. You're going to read Daniel chapter 3. And then you're going to put it into practice. And Nebuchadnezzar's going to get his hands on you and he's going to tie you up and he's going to put you in the furnace. Only you're not going to get out. See, not everybody walks out of the furnace. Not everybody survives the fire. And it doesn't mean they didn't have faith. 
It doesn't mean their faith wavered. It didn't waver. That's why they were put into the fire. They did have faith. But not everybody, not everybody comes out of the furnace. Not like they did. And someone might say, well, then why should I trust God then, huh? Well, the answer is for the same reason they did. That's why. Because God is God. And he doesn't owe. He doesn't owe me good health. He doesn't owe me a successful career. He doesn't owe me a long life. He doesn't owe my children a long life either. He doesn't owe me a pension. He doesn't owe me sunny skies. He doesn't owe me a tragic free life. God doesn't owe. Now, he gives many of these gifts. But he does it because he's good and loving and caring and sharing and mysterious. And so the question on the table is this. Am I willing to love God for who he is or for what he gives? Am I willing to honor him for him? What about you? I mean, do you want people to love you for who you are or for what you give? Why would it be any different from God? Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament contains a wonderful roster of God's people who demonstrated unwavering faith, but not every one of those people survived the furnace. We know that. Hebrews chapter 11, 35 says, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. And that was why these three said, But even if he does not... You see, they reasoned, if we survive the flames, we'll be better for it. If we don't survive the flames, we'll really be better for it. A better resurrection. And at that point, they revealed their unwavering faith. They they revealed an unwavering worldview, which is this. There is a life beyond this life. There is a God who is supreme over all. And he's the source of life. And he's the source of my life. And he is the source of an even better resurrection. And you know why, don't you? Because of the fourth person in the furnace. That's why. Nebuchadnezzar called him like a son of the gods. Or he called him later on in that passage an angel. Christians have a sneaking suspicion that the one, like a son of the gods, was in fact the son of God. A glimpse of the pre-incarnate Christ. A preview of the coming of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Compared to the glorious splendor of heaven in which the Son of God lived for all eternity, coming to earth was a lot like walking in a furnace. His humble birth, his stressful life, his being targeted by enemies who wanted him dead, and then there was the furnace of Gethsemane itself in which Luke tells us that his sweat 
was like great drops of blood. And even then, that wasn't the hottest of the furnace. It was the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ truly entered the furnace. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he was condemned unjustly to a painful death by a totalitarian ruler. And when it came time for Jesus to enter his furnace, he entered alone. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When the fire of God's wrath burned him to the core, he was alone. And you know why, don't you? Because you see, on the cross, Jesus was suffering not only with us, but for us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were heroes, good men, but sinful men nonetheless. And these three did not then deserve the Lord's deliverance because of their perfect lives. God walked through the fire with them because later he came to earth in Jesus and went through the fire of punishment for them. And that is why we worship Jesus. He is the great king who entered the furnace not just to die with us, but for us. I know who goes before me, the God of angel armies. He's always by my side. Unwavering faith. Here's a question that... um, I've really been pondering about this chapter. What about those Hebrews who did bow? <laughs> you know? And we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not waver, but what about those who may have broken faith with God? I mean, the three of them stood. These verses pay attention to them. But what about those who may have compromised their faith? But then later realized what a mistake that was. Were there any? Oh, we don't know. It doesn't say. You know, we could speculate all day and not really know. But I know this. I know in church history, when the Roman Empire persecuted Christians under pain of death, there were two groups of the persecuted. There were those who were persecuted and they stayed true to the confession of their faith. And church historians call them the confessors. The confessors. And some of them survived the persecution. Some of them survived the wild beasts. But then there were others who in a moment of weakness, they lapsed. They lapsed. They denied Christ. And later they regretted it, but they were called the lapsy. The lapsy. So you had the confessors and you had the lapsy. That's what you had. And now these people come into a church service together. And sitting right next to someone who had denied Christ at the moment of truth. Sitting, the the, the one who had lapsed, the lapsy, sitting right next to someone who was a part of the lapsy would be someone who was a confessor. 
who may have entered the worship with only one limb or half of their body or half of their face scarred, having been mauled by the wild beasts. And, you know, there was quite a bit of discussion about, well, what do we do with the lapsi? And some of the church leaders back then were legalistic, and they said, they've got to prove their faith, they're going to have to be martyrs. So they're going to have to die. Sure glad I didn't go to that church. Thankfully, graciously, church history tells us that most of the leaders said, no, 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 no. You don't make them become martyrs just to prove their faith. They're broken. They're hurting. They regret this. Now is when we need to shepherd them the most. And so they came. They came. And you know what? They're still here. Here we are. Here we are. We have the, those who are, have walked consistently, unwavering, and then we have those who've wavered. And, you know, their heart hurts for that. But they're here. And Lord, you know, is there a place for me in a place like this? And God's grace says, yes, yes. The one who walked in the furnace for us did it for us. For us. And you know how I know that you all practice this on a weekly basis? You know how I know that? Because I was at Celebrate Recovery Friday night. And we have the confessors and we have the lapsy and we have, we're all together here. And for the past five years, you know, a week from Friday, we're going to celebrate the fifth anniversary of our Celebrate Recovery ministry. You're invited ahead of time. I hope you can come. But this ministry is, is God's grace in practice because God's grace delivered us and God's grace sustains us. It's God's grace. Undeserved gift to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver whom we trust with unwavering faith. Amen.